But God, not because we had any power to love you, but because you loved us first. And we thank you for that this morning. We thank you for the reminder of your great grace and your great love. And our love for you only pales in comparison to what you have shown us. And so this morning, I pray that you would allow us to glimpse uh, just a little bit of your love and your grace and your mercy, to glimpse a little bit of who you are. And as we understand who you are and how you work, Lord, that it would guide us, direct us, rebuke us if need be, Lord, that it would comfort us if need be. Whatever it is today that you would have for your word to do in our hearts and in our lives, I pray that you would do just that. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. May be seated. So it's been a little while since I've been a child. I mean, you ask my wife and maybe I still am. Uh, what was that, Ed? What were you saying to me? Uh, however, I remember, uh, and you know, this didn't happen often because I was such a good kid, but I remember the times, I remember the times where I had to be punished or disciplined by my parents, and uh, I, I remember as I think back over my childhood, and even now as I'm a father, and there comes times where uh, my kids require some discipline, um, and uh, I think about what it was when I was a child that would make me truly want to change the way I was doing what I was doing. I, and my parents used all sorts of techniques, and I uh, don't judge them on what they chose to do and, uh, and or what other parents might choose to do, but there was lots of things that they tried to get me to behave in a certain way. But mostly it wasn't about just to behave in a certain way. Mostly it was more about... Um, Hey, this is the way you need to function in society. This is the way you need to function so that you will remain safe. Uh, and that's most times why a parent uh, will discipline their child. And it's not uh, because they hate the child. Actually, it's the exact opposite. Uh, and I remember as a kid when, when I would do something that was detrimental to myself or to those around me, um, my parents would choose different ways. Maybe it was grounding or maybe uh, it was a stern talking to uh, maybe, uh, and many, many times it came in the, in the form of a spanking, right? So, but I remember the times where I really felt the most, where I really wanted to change the most. It wasn't in the original, uh, in the original discipline. It wasn't in the original correction that I had received. For instance, if I was spanked, most times if I was spanked for what I had done, I would get angry, I would get upset, I would be in pain, I would, and I would lash out in other ways, or I would re- retreat into myself, or I would go to my room and hide, whatever it might be. And those times, honestly, they, that wasn't the part that really made a difference in the way I saw my parents or in the way that I would go forward from there. If it got left at that, I would just go right back to what I had done, and honestly, then the whole cycle would repeat itself. But I remember specifically, and I've experienced this now as a father, that there is more heart change, there is more change in behavior or more feeling in the moments after discipline, in the moments after the spanking when my dad or my mom would come to my room after they had, they had punished me for whatever wrong I had done. They came and they embraced me and they gave me a hug and said, I love you, I forgive you, please don't do this again. And how many times have I, do I remember as a kid and now even as a father that when that moment comes, the tears start flowing and all of a sudden there is great sorrow, but it's sorrow that leads towards a change, sorrow that leads towards an understanding and relationships would get even stronger between parent and child. You see, just hitting a child isn't going to do anything if it's not in conjunction with love. And so I was spanked, and that was whatever. I mean, some of you may spank, some of you may not. That is not what the sermon is about. We're not going there. But what I will say is even if it was a grounding, even if I was grounded for a week, and then at the end of that week my parents came and said, you know, we love you so much, your grounding is over, we don't want to have to do that again, we forgive you, and, and move forward. And those moments, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily what they did to discipline me, it was more how they showed their love and their understanding and their forgiveness at the end of all that, that really changed anything in my life. 
And I hope the same thing will be true of my kids. I know when I lash out in anger for, and, and punish my children in a way that I shouldn't or in a way that wasn't thought out and it's not accompanied by a loving action to show the care, concern, grace, and mercy that my children need because I need that same grace and mercy. When I don't show those things, nothing changes. But I've been on the other end where I've been hugging my child and forgiving them for what they've done and experienced the release the, the tears, the, the, the asking for forgiveness, the humility that comes as a result of the aftermath of discipline. And I say all that today because God is very similar. We've been talking in the book of Judges quite a bit about how God deals with his people. And quite honestly, it can get kind of depressing, scary, uh, or even just lack a certain amount of hope. Because we see through the book of Judges that Israel, the God's people, the one who, who he chose through Abraham to show his light to the world, is in a place where they are continually doing really dumb stuff, sinful things, things that are against God's character and going against him, and God has to discipline. But notice, we're going to be careful here, because I know sometimes we use the word punish and discipline like they're the same thing. There is a difference. Difference. Punishment is you have done something wrong and therefore I'm going to make you pay. Discipline is you have done something wrong but I want you to do something right. So I'm going to do what it takes to get you to the place of doing what is right. It's doing what is good to someone even though it might not seem good at the time. The punishment for sin, by the way, was there, sin has been punished. And we are in a place now where we understand, as we've talked about in the book of Joshua, that sin is punished in the death of Jesus Christ. And so therefore, when God deals with us, deals with his people, even before Jesus, because ultimately the ultimate grace comes through Jesus, which we'll talk about later, God is disciplining, not punishing. And we're going to see today that God is a God of discipline, but God is also a God of deliverance. And these two things go together. If you take only one or the other, they don't have the same impact. But God will discipline his people, but at the same time provide deliverance. Because God is not only a just God that must, that must see sin and deal with sin and discipline for sin, but God, and God is holy, so we must deal with that, but God is also merciful and gracious and loving. And today, I'm hoping we get that flair as we see from Judges chapter 3. The first three judges, remember judges that will deliver Israel, judges that are really Israel's saviors for the moment. So far, book of Joshua going back, God has used Joshua to give Israel the promised land. That's where they're at. They're at the promised land. They've experienced the blessing that God has given of the promised land. They're in control of it. Joshua died and Israel is told to complete this conquest by driving out all the people, all the Canaanites that are in the land still. Israel started off well, but they quickly gave in to compromise. For their own selfish convenience, they left the Canaanites in the land and they didn't drive them out the way God told them to. Throughout the book of Joshua, or through Judges, we are going to see this carousel of compromise. It will show us a repeating cycle in Judges that Israel fails, is delivered, and fails again, is delivered, is failed, and fails again. And it goes in a cycle, and it's a spiral that goes down and down and down. And yet today, I hope we see that ultimately this isn't just about God's judgment, but it's also about his discipline. It's about his deliverance. And so Israel so far, what we saw last week, Israel has failed the test that God has given them. The test that was before them. I'm going to leave these nations so that you will prove that you will obey me. So that you will prove that you will trust me. So that you will have experience and understand what trusting God looks like. And Israel failed that test. We looked at that last week. Israel failed God's test instead of being made better by the test, instead of passing the test and having God do good to them, they fail the test and God is forced to do ill to them to discipline them for their sin. God is not just a forgiving God who is just going to forgive without any consequence to sin. There is always consequence and we're going to see that in Israel. So this morning, we're going to look at the first three judges We've talked about these judges, judges that God sends to Israel to deliver them. In the midst of this cycle, when they're sinning and they're needing to be delivered, God sends them judges. Temporary rulers, temporary saviors, temporary 
deliverers, however you want to use those words. That is what God sends. And we're going to see the first three of those this morning. And when we look at the first three judges, we're going to see this. This is the question we're answering today. What was the result of Israel's failure? Since Israel failed the test, what was the result? And we're going to see that in these first three judges and the stories that surround them. What happened as a result of the fact that Israel failed to trust God, that Israel failed to obey God? Since they failed to do what God had asked, what does that mean for them? What will happen? And now we start seeing with the very first three judges, we've got 12 judges in all, but in the first three, we're going to see how things start, and we're going to see how this cycle begins and will continue through the rest of the book. So with all that being said, let's go to Judges chapter 3. Judges chapter 3, and we are going to read Judges 3.7 all the way through 3.31, and then we're going to make some general comments of what we see happening and what the result of Israel's failure is. So Judges chapter 3, starting in verse 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan-Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan-Rishathim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel, who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan-Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan-Rishathaim. And so the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon the king of Moab 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And the Lord raised up for them a deliverer. Ehud the son of Gera the Benjamite. A left handed man. The people of Israel sent a tribute by him to Eglon the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bounded on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. Yes, that's a wonderful verse. And when Ehud had finished, and when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself returned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber, and Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat, and Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Read the Bible more, guys. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed, but when he did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sirah. And he, when he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites and all strong, able-bodied men, and not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. After him was Shamgar the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. Yes, the Bible can be interesting. Believe it or not, this is God's word, but he gives us some 
very important things. And you say, this is an interesting story when we get to uh, Ehud and Eglon, and we will get there. We looked at Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar. These are the first three judges of Israel. Othniel's told, we're told a little bit, Ehud, we're told quite a bit, and then Shamgar is basically just a side note. But all three of them saved Israel. They delivered Israel. They were temporary deliverers, temporary saviors. But in these three stories, we see uh, we, these three narratives that really happened in history, but we see what happens, and we're, there's three main things that we're going to see. The first thing, what was the result of Israel's failure? Well, the first result is that Israel is disciplined. Israel receives discipline from God. What does the discipline look like? Well, in all these stories, what we see is uh, Israel no longer had rest. Let's just start there. Israel no longer had rest. Remember, when they took the land, we're told in the end of Joshua that they had rest in the land. Another word for rest here would be peace. Ultimate peace, rest in God, rest in what he had given them. But now all of a sudden we see things are starting to happen and Israel no longer has rest. Instead of rest and peace, we see fighting and we see war and we see these things come out as a result of Israel's failure to, to pass the test that God had given them. So Israel no longer had rest. The rest that they had, that God had given, he takes away. He says, since you have not continued trusting me, that rest that I gave you is no longer yours. So we see Israel no longer had rest. Part of that was the second point, is that Israel's enemies attacked them. Uh, With Othniel, it's Mesopotamia, uh, and uh, that long name of the king that I probably am saying wrong. But, uh, but by the way, the interesting thing about the name, Kushan uh, Rishathim, Rishathim actually means doubly wicked. So whoever this guy was, he was a pretty bad guy. But he takes Israel and he, uh, the king of Mesopotamia, we're not even exactly sure what area that might be talking about, but it's a king that comes in and is attacking Israel. And the, we're told in a minute, we'll look at this, the people served this king for eight years. So he came in and he took Israel captive to serve him. And so that's the first one. And then we see Ehud comes in, this guy named Eglon, and, and he's from Moab. And if you know anything about Moab, you know that this is a long-standing feud that will be between Israel and Moab for a long time. But Ehud, the king of Moab, has come in and he actually defeated Israel and is ruling over Israel. God, uh, in, in, his, in his discipline here, we see Israel is being disciplined. Not only do they not have rest, but they're enemies. So it's not only that they're just having to fight wars and winning the wars. They are fighting wars, but they are losing them, and the enemies are having victory. The enemies are, the enemies are attacking, and they need, and they're actually being conquered in some cases. When we get to Shamgar, we don't know if... At this point, the Philistines actually had any real control over Israel. But we know that the Philistines, that you know those people. Remember David and Goliath? Goliath was, Goliath was a Philistine. Uh, even all throughout Israel's history, both here and all the way forward, the Philistines are going to be a thorn in their side. But the Philistines would be coming from the way of the sea, and they would be coming in, and they would try to take Israel. And then we have Shamgar, who is this guy that gets only three lines in the Bible, but has killed 600 of them. With an ox code, which we'll talk about in a moment. But all three of these guys saved Israel from an enemy. But we're getting ahead of ourselves because the, the essence here is that there is no rest. That there is, there is attacking. There is defeat. And then we see, and I already mentioned it, Israel served their enemies. With the exception of maybe the Philistines, because we're not told enough to know if they were actually... Uh, subjecting Israel to servitude, uh, we, we see uh, that in Moab and with the guy from Mesopotamia, when we see these things, it, we're told that Israel serves them. That means that they have been defeated. That means that they are slaves. Isn't it interesting that Israel gave up their freedom? They became slaves to people because they had given themselves to slavery to false gods. That as Israel has escaped slavery in Egypt, and then Israel makes the Canaanites their slaves, but then start to worship their gods, and all of a sudden the script is completely flipped. Israel goes from the captors and the slaveholders to the slaves. 
This is discipline that they are facing. Discipline that God says, you have failed my test, therefore you will be disciplined. And it comes from the outside. It comes from the enemies as they defeat them and cause them to have to serve their enemies. There's no greater embarrassment for Israel than to have been enslaved again by another nation. The second point we see as a result of Israel's failure, though, it didn't, Israel is disciplined, sure, but it doesn't stay there. It's not like they're in a perpetual place of slavery or a perpetual place of defeat. We see the second thing that God does and, and what happens in Israel is that Israel is delivered. Whereas they are disciplined by the enemies around them, now they are delivered. God will deliver them. And we see things happening. The first couple that we see in the first two stories here, Israel cries out for help. Israel cried out for help. They get so desperate. They finally realize that they have gone the wrong way. And whether out of repentance or just because they have no other option, they cry out to God. They ask for him to deliver them. Quick side note, and I'm hoping we talk about this as we go through the book of Judges. But I think Israel here, when they cry out to God, I'm not saying that they're wrong. It's good for them to cry out to God. But I believe as we look through the book of Judges that Israel is calling out to God for what he can do for them, not just because they want him. They're calling out for his hand, if you will, but they're not calling out for his face. They're not seeking his face. They are simply just calling out and asking for what he can do for them. And God is a God who is a gracious and merciful God who will deliver them. But then they go back to their old ways. And I have to believe that part of it's because they want God's blessing, but they don't want God himself. May that not be said of us. That's not the point of this whole sermon, but it's something I've been thinking about a lot lately that God has really been working on my heart. Do I truly seek God or do I just seek what he can give? Let's seek God and not just his gifts. His gifts are great, but it's nothing compared to the giver. Anyway, getting back to what we're looking at here. They cry out for help. So I don't know what their motive was. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they truly did want God to re, to the presence of God. I don't believe that's true or they would change, I would think. But they don't change. And so they cry out to God for help. And God will answer. And what we see is as they cry out for help, Israel has victory over their enemies. Othniel goes to war and gives victory. Ehud becomes an assassin and they have victory. Shamgar has victory out in the fields with an ox goad. There is victory that has been had. And that is the deliverance that Israel was calling out for. And deliverance is given. And they have victory over their enemies. And then finally, Israel had rest. The rest that they gave up, they don't have rest. And then they're attacked, and then they have victory, and now they again have the rest that God has promised them, and they have rest. And so we see that although Israel was disciplined, and that is not a good thing, and it looks bad, and, it's, and it's hurt, it hurts, then we see Israel is also delivered, and that they are given back what they once had. But then we'll turn back again and again and again. It's that cycle we've been talking about. The first three uh, judges, we see this cycle. Because actually in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 1, after Shamgar kills 600 of the Philistines, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. See, Shamgar and Ehud were actually operating at the same time, just in different areas of Israel. But both of them were showing the deliverance that God had given. And when Ehud dies, the people do Israel or do evil again. So we see that Israel is disciplined and Israel is delivered. But here's the main point. Those are just what we see happening. Just factual. This is what happens. Israel is disciplined. They have hard times. The the nations come and take them captive. Uh, They have wars to fight. But then we also see that Israel is delivered. They cry out for help. They have victory over their enemies and they have rest in the land. And just to to, to read that, uh, you see... Okay, Israel, this is an up and down thing, and they're doing what they can. But here is the ultimate thing that we need to look at today, and what we need to look at through the book of Judges. And that is this. Notice that Israel is disciplined, and Israel is delivered. It does not say that Israel disciplined themselves. It does not say that Israel delivered themselves. 
This was a passive thing for them. They were being disciplined. They were being delivered. So point three is this, that God is the agent of discipline and deliverance. God is the agent, the one who acts. That's the definition of agent we're using here, the one who acts. God is the agent, the acting one of discipline and deliverance. We actually see as we read these passages that God is the one who gives discipline. First of all, he empowered Israel's enemies. This is getting a little hard to take now. God empowered Israel's enemies. This is not just that God said, oh, you didn't obey me, I'm going to ignore you. And then the people of Israel, or the people of Canaan came and took the people of Israel into captivity and to take them, to make them serve them. But no, actually what we're told is that in verse 8, therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. Later on, when we look at Moab, we see it happen again. We see that it talks about that, um, that uh, they did what was evil in sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened. The Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. God empowers Eglon. Now, once again, we get to Shamgar, and we don't have enough information, but we have to understand that if it's happening in the first two nations, it's the same thing that would be happening from the Philistines, that God somehow is allowing the Philistines to be able to create a problem for Israel. I know that's somewhat uh, just looking at it and trying to figure out, but, but at least these first two, we see no question. God is the one that is strengthening their enemies. <clears throat> the first king was for eight years they were in subjection. With Eglon, king of Moab, it was 18 years of subjection. And I would say the Philistines were always a thorn in Israel's side. We're not sure how long here the problem persisted. The 600 Philistines that were killed could have been over a long period of time. Could have been in one battle. We're not really sure. But we do know that God sold his people to other nations for eight years and then for 18 years. God did it to discipline his children, to discipline those he loves. The Bible is clear that God will discipline those he loves for their own good. And that's what God is doing. See, God is not just passive here. He's not just saying, all right, I'm going to let happen what's going to happen. God is still sovereign. God is still the one who is acting. And he is literally taking the nations and empowering them to have victory over his own people. That's hard to take. Because so many of us want to see God as this God who would never, ever do anything that we wouldn't like. God loves us and cares about us. He loves and cares for his people so much that he'll even bring pain if that's what's going to make them more like him. So this shouldn't surprise us. But God empowers Israel's enemies. But then we see not only did God empower Israel's enemies, so God did not only give power to the enemies to bring discipline on Israel. This was God's hand. This was God's sovereignty at work. God also empowered judges to fight for Israel. <clears throat> Again, just like Joshua, these three stories are not made, are not given here to make Othniel famous, to make Ehud famous, to make Shamgar famous. What these things are here to show us is very clearly that God is the one that is delivering them. He is simply using these judges. He gives them the power. The first one we see is Othniel. Othniel, we know, is uh, the uh, son-in-law of Caleb, one one of the spies who is faithful when they went into the land. And one who we've already seen in Joshua is one who wholly followed the Lord. And he gives his daughter to Othniel. And Othniel is... Really, the first judge that we're, taught, that we're told about here, and there is nothing negative said about Othniel. He is in Caleb's family. He is a faithful one. So he is not a big surprise that he might be one that is a judge. However, verse 10 tells us very clearly how it is that Othniel was able to deliver the people of Israel. It wasn't through his own power. It wasn't through his own strength. It wasn't through his fighting ability. But what it says in verse 10 is that the Spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel. He went out to war and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. 
God gave victory. So again, we see that God empowers. He sends his spirit to be upon Othniel so that God will give victory to Israel. It's not about Othniel. It's not about his merits, but it's about God's strength. Then Othniel dies, and what do we see? Well, Israel goes back to doing evil, and now we get this very interesting story in the middle of chapter 3 of Ehud and Eglon. Honestly, in Bible college, this was my favorite Bible story. There is so much here, and yes, it's funny. You know what? We laugh, but I actually think this is written because it was meant to make us laugh, in a sense, and let's explain what that looks like. To really think about how God is the one who is the deliverer, not only is he the one who disciplines, but he, he is also the deliverer, we look at Ehud in verses 12 through 30, and the first thing we see about Ehud is very interesting. It says he's left handed. Now, how many people are left-handed? Weirdos. All right, so we got some weirdos here. No, but listen, today it doesn't matter that much. You can be left-handed. You might have some complications. I've heard left-handers say there's some things that are just really weird, uh, and it's really hard to deal with. However, back in, in, in the old times, if you, back here in biblical times, if you were left-handed, you were a freak. Like, you were, the, the sign of strength for any ancient person was their right hand. Note, remember, even throughout Scripture, that when we're told about God and, and how he's going to deliver his people, he has a mighty right hand. It doesn't say he has a mighty left hand because Israel and, and ancient people would have thought, no, this, that right hand is where all your strength comes from because most people are right-handed. But actually, if you read this in the original Hebrew, there's also a little interesting part we see here about Ehud. We read he's left-handed, but actually, literally what it says is, He cannot use his right hand. He's unable to use his right hand. So maybe it's because he was just naturally left-handed. But I actually believe here that there is a reason that he's left-handed. Most scholars will actually think that he he had some kind of deformity. He was probably disabled. He had no use of his right arm. You say, well, why would that matter at all? Well, a king of uh, of a nation that just had taken over its enemy and was subjecting it to slavery, would not want to let a warrior come into his throne room. Does that just make sense? Uh, If, uh, hey, you know, I know I've just conquered you. Why don't you come have dinner with me? Yeah, bring your weapons, whatever. I mean, you're a warrior, that's cool. No, he'd never do that. But Ehud here is bringing a tribute. He is not threatening in any way, shape, or form. That's seen by the fact that he's allowed into the king's chamber with a sword on himself. Now, you look at today and you think of politicians. Like, you can't, you can't go anywhere without somebody uh, being there with a metal detector to pat you down, whatever it might be. But here, Ehud is so undervalued. Ehud is so just overlooked that he is allowed to just walk right in to talk to the king with a sword that's a cubit long, like this long, in his pants. It's there. It's ready. It's against his hip. It's ready to be used, and he is allowed in there. Partly because normally you'd wear your sword on your left side. There's a chance they may have actually looked and to see if he had a sword. They would have looked on the wrong side because most people would use their right hand to fight. But more likely, it was simply that he had some kind of deformity, some kind of disability that made him weak, that made him of no threat to Eglon. And so we read a left-handed man, and either way, I mean, left-handed people were not looked upon favorably, but I think it's even greater than that. I think we see that whoever Ehud was, he was somebody that you didn't look at and think he's a warrior. And so he goes and he brings tribute. God uh, gives him the opportunity to go and give tribute, to bring an offering to Ehud, who, or to Eglon, who we are told is a very fat man. Um, yes, apparently very fat, probably to show us how much he had really uh, exploited people for his own good, for his own gluttony in life. He's a very fat man. Ehud comes in. He's got the sword on his, on his right hip so he can grab it quickly. He's not checked. He's not seen to be a threat. God uses that disability, however you want to define it, to give Ehud an opportunity to be right there as he says he has a secret message for the king, and the king lets all of his attendants leave, once again to show there is no threat here. Whoever 
Ehud is, he's not a threat. Whatever he looks like or however he's disabled, he's not a threat. And Eglon says, yes, everybody leave. And then Ehud comes and he plunges his sword into his stomach. And the whole knife, whole sword, gets caught up in his stomach. This guy had to be huge. It gets caught in his fat. It envelops the sword. Uh, Ehud can't even take the sword with him. He's got to leave it behind. And then, yes, everybody was like, ew, and the dung came out. This was such a violent act that really it completely um, just took Eglon out. He had no hope. You know that when people die, a lot of times their, their faculties are gone. Like it just, and that's what happens. And so we see this kind of grotesque picture. And then we see his attendants coming, and they're, the room's locked. Like, oh, man, he must be relieving himself. Why would they think that? Well, probably because the room smelled like it. Think about it, what we just read. God is orchestrating everything here so that Ehud can get away. And here's the thing. God used someone who was not seen to be strong in any way. He goes back, he gets the people of Ephraim, and he says, the Lord has given Moab into our hand. He understood, Ehud understood that this was from the power of God, and he brings the people from Ephraim, and they kill... uh, they kill how many people was it? Ten thousand of the Moabites who are strong, able-bodied men. They had no right to be able to beat them, but God gave them victory, and God orchestrated this whole thing so that Ehud could get away while the servants were waiting on Eglon to be done using the bathroom. And then they got embarrassed, and they finally found his dead body. But by then, the shock was there. Ehud had already escaped. He was already bringing back people, and God used all of those things that came together to bring victory, but it was all about God. Ehud was not a warrior. He was simply one that was chosen to bring his tribute, to bring taxes to Eglon. And God chose to use Ehud. He chose to use, uh, by the way, he's also a Benjamite, which if you remember in the first couple of chapters of Judges, the Benjamites are not looked on very well. They left people in Jerusalem. They left people around. They weren't willing to fight. So really, the Benjamite people are looked at as kind of the weak tribe. And so God chooses this man who is disabled and from a weak tribe to go in and to bring victory to Israel. But God is the one who did it. But I want you to take a picture. Just take a moment moment to notice this. As we laugh about this story, why would there be so many details that are in here that are just kind of weird and embarrassing? Well, it's because, remember, as Israel was embarrassed by the people that took them captive, God wants to show that he is so powerful and so great and so big and that he is Israel's God that not only does he bring victory, but he brings complete and total embarrassment to the Moabite people. God is showing us here that the nations of the land can try to humiliate his people, but ultimately God is the one who is holding them in his hand. And this is an embarrassing story for anybody who is from Moab to know how this had gone down. And God says, I am not only going to give victory, but I'm going to completely embarrass you in the process because God is going to punish those who judge his people, who are unfair, who are people who are treating them this way. The ones, again, who they were supposed to be driven out before because of their false worship. Notice that Ehud turns around to come back at the idols at Gilgal. He sees the idolatry one more time, and he's like, this is my time. And he goes back and he kills Eglon It's a reminder again of these people and how evil they were. And God says, you are so evil that not only am I going to give victory, but I'm going to completely embarrass you. God is so strong and so powerful that no one can hold a light to him. And that's what God is showing. And finally, as we're talking about God empowering judges to fight for Israel, there's Shamgar. We already told a few things. After him was Shamgar. And actually, as I said, this was actually more of a uh, not so much... Linear, but this was happening after this victory happened. Then we see Shamgar in the same general time frame is on the other side of, uh, of Israel, and he is on the other side of Canaan, and he's fighting against the Philistines. And we're told that he killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. Like, no big deal, right? An ox goad. 
It's a wooden stick with a little point on the end. He kills 600 fully trained Philistine warriors with a wooden stick with a little sharp piece on it that you would use to get an ox to go forward, kind of like a whip almost. Uh, this is what he has, this, little, this stick about this long, little point, and he kills 600 people. And that's all we're told. Not told how it happened, not told anything else. Yeah, just, oh yeah, this guy, Shamgar, yeah, he goes out with this wooden stick and he kills 600 people. What's the point? Why are we even told that? Well, obviously, this wasn't his own strength that gave him victory, to have victory over 600 armed men with simply a wooden stick with a sharp end. And so, obviously, God is the one giving victory here, but there's another thing we don't notice. And it says, after him was Shamgar, the son of Anath. You want to know who Anath was? Anath was actually a female goddess to the Canaanites. What does that mean? Well, there is a good chance, and we're not positive, but there is a good chance that Shamgar, because his name also isn't normally how a Hebrew name would be structured, that Shamgar was not an Israelite by birth. Maybe he was a converted Israelite, or a converted from the Canaanites. Maybe he was the son of an Israelite man and a, and a Canaanite woman, or vice versa. We're not really sure, but we know one thing from all indications. He's not even a full-blooded Israelite, and yet God is using him. That doesn't make sense. But God is showing again that it's not about the person, it's not about the strength that people have, but it's about his strength to bring deliverance. And that's what he does. So through these three stories, we see God working in the people of Israel and giving deliverance. And then we see that God does give that victory, and God gives rest again. After Shamgar, we're not told if there was rest that was needed. But the other two, it's very clear. It says, after the battle with Othniel, for instance, it says, and the land had rest for 40 years. So they were... Captured for eight years, they had rest for 40. And then with Ehud, we see at the end of that passage, it says, and the land had rest for 80 years. 18 years of uh, being under uh, Moab, and now 80 years of rest. God brings the rest back. He gives rest. 40 years under Othniel, 80 years under Ehud. God gives ultimate rest here to Israel. He gives rest to Israel And this is a part of his deliverance. But just notice for a moment that the rest that God gives lasts a whole lot longer than the discipline he gives. Eight years versus 40. Eighteen years versus 80. See, God is not ultimately a God who is looking to hurt or to harm. God disciplines for a good purpose. And he brings rest. And his grace and his mercy is even bigger and greater than even the discipline that he has to give to us. We're going to read more about that at the end when our benediction is from Romans 5. But we see that God's grace is even greater than their sin. God's grace is even greater than their falling away. That he wants to show again that he and his grace and mercy is so much stronger than anything that they, no matter what they do, no matter how bad they get, God is still the same gracious and merciful and loving God that he always has been. And he gives them rest. But here's what I don't want us to miss today. Because how does all this matter? I, I read these three stories and I was like, these are interesting stories, but what does it matter? What does it mean? What, what, it, what does it mean for us? What does it mean for me? I, I don't know. Uh, but uh, reading this and praying about it and looking at what God does in his people, he is not a God who changes. He is still a God who disciplines. When we are sinning and walking away from him, God is still a God who will discipline us. We'll look at that in a moment in a verse in Revelation chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 12, we'll look at those in just a moment. But God still disciplines his kids, his people, his children for their good. But God also is still a God of deliverance. And he wants to deliver you from whatever discipline you might be facing. He wants to deliver you and bring you grace and mercy and peace and rest. That's what he wants to give you. But we also need to remember that as we look at Israel, we look at how God worked in them 
And we think about this idea of rest and peace that God wants to give through deliverance again. And you're going to hear me say this almost every message we look at Judges. Because this, I believe, is the theme. The theme of Judges, I believe, is that God's people fail. And he can, he's giving them temporary saviors. I've been saying that a lot today. Temporary saviors. But the truth of the matter is we know that there is coming. And there has come in our, from our perspective one who is the ultimate Savior, not a temporary Savior, but the Savior of all for all time, and that is Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. It's a reminder. We've read, we read this when we were in Joshua, but it's just another reminder of what God wants us to have rest. Remember, with Israel, he brought them rest what does he say in Hebrews chapter 4? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1, and then we're going to skip to verse 11 for time's sake. But chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, while, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Over in verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Talking about the disobedience of Israel. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who we must give account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Why do I read Hebrews chapter 4? It says God still has rest for us. It's not rest the way that Israel was going to experience peace in the land, but he has ultimate peace and ultimate rest, and that comes through the high priest, Jesus Christ. Through his word, his incarnate word that came to this world, Jesus, the Son of God, he is the one who brings rest. Because we can come to him. We can come to him in confidence, draw near to his throne that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. So ultimately, when we face discipline, God wants to give us rest. Yes, now, but even more so, he wants us to look to the rest that we're already promised in Jesus Christ. And that we can rest in everything by coming to him and coming to his throne in confidence and asking for the mercy and grace that God has shown us in Judges and will show us throughout Scripture that he loves to pour out on his people. God gives ultimate rest through Jesus. And so as we conclude, the first question we have for all of us is have you received this deliverance from your sin through Jesus Christ? We have all have sinned and disobeyed and walked away from God. The only way to experience real deliverance, to be freed from the slavery of sin, that we are just downtrodden and beaten down by sin, the only way to be delivered from that is through Jesus Christ we ask Jesus to be our Savior. The word for Savior is the same word as Deliverer. We are asking Jesus to deliver us from sin. As God delivered Israel from their oppressors, we also need deliverance from our oppressor, which is sin itself. And so therefore, we can come to Jesus, as we're told in Hebrews chapter 4. We can come to Jesus as we know him, but maybe you've never come to him in the first place. You need to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I believe that you <clears throat> took my sin on yourself, that your, the sin was punished by you giving your life on the cross. You died for my sins to forgive the sins of people who will come to you in faith. And you need to believe in Jesus. You need to trust him. You need to trust that he has taken the punishment for your sin and he offers real forgiveness. He offers real deliverance. He offers real salvation from sin. This isn't just a, hey, if I say I love Jesus, then I get to go to heaven. But there's so much more, so much more depth that he offers, deliverance from sin. And he died to say, I can deliver from sin. And he rose again to say, I am powerful enough to deliver you from sin, give you new life. I can resurrect this life, I can resurrect your life. And so Jesus 
rose again, and that is the gospel, that he died for our sins and that he rose again, and that through faith and trusting in him, giving our lives over to him and trusting in who he is and what he's done, that is salvation. That is true deliverance that will never pass away. That's not temporary deliverance. That is permanent deliverance, and we can only have that through Jesus. If, that's, if today you have not experienced that deliverance, come to Jesus Ask him to be your deliverer, your savior. Trust him completely and give your life over to him. That is what he asks. A couple questions we need to ask if we do know Jesus. And that is, are you in a place in your life where you are being disciplined for unrepentant sin? Now, there are times that we go through hard things in life. It's not always because we are sinning. Sometimes it's God giving us a test going back to last week. Sometimes uh, it's just the way this fallen world works. We, are, we have the consequence of sin on us, even though we might not be actually committing some sin. <clears throat> but I want, you really need to ask this question. If you're going through hard times, if your heart is hurting, if you are having trouble, if there are things going not the way you want them to go in life, and you are frustrated, angry, upset, depressed... You need to really take some time to really look hard into your life and say, is there something in my heart? Is there something in the way that I am living? Is there something in the way that I relate to God that is keeping me from him? A sin that I won't, I'm not willing to forsake. Maybe something that I should be doing but I'm not ever doing. And that in itself is a sin. To, to him who knows to do good and doesn't do it, that is sin. And so, is there a sin in your life? Maybe it's something you're doing, or maybe it's something you're not doing. But something that you know is not right in your relationship with God, and it's causing problems, and it's causing difficulties. Know that if God is bringing discipline, he's doing it for a reason. He wants you to repent of your sin, whatever that is, and move forward with him. And he wants to deliver you even out of the sin you're struggling with right now. Revelation chapter 3. I mentioned it earlier. But Revelation chapter 3 is a truth that we can cling to. Revelation chapter 3, verse 19. Revelation three nineteen, And it's right after he talks to the church at Laodicea and says, You're not hot, you're not cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. But then he says something amazing. In verse 19 he says, Those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I am standing at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Jesus is saying, look, it's not too late. If you're struggling with something, if something has overtaken your life, a sin that you have not had any victory over, you are no longer struggling against it and it is bringing you down and it is dragging you down. What we're told in Revelation, what we're told throughout Scripture is that Jesus is ready to receive you. He's going to discipline you for what reason? To bring you to repentance, to be zealous for him, to live for him, to have to be better off, to be more like him. That's what the Bible says. So if you are in a place today where you know that God is working in your heart and you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit that there is something you are doing that is harming your relationship with God that is causing discipline in your life, or if there is something in your heart that you know you should be doing and you are not doing and you know that it's causing discipline in your life, then repent and be zealous. Repent and look to Jesus. He can give deliverance even over whatever sin you're facing. There is no sin that is too strong, too hard, too big for Jesus to overcome. That is the truth of Scripture. So come to him and repent. And finally, my question is this. If you are going through hard times, maybe it's deliverance, or maybe it's um, discipline, or maybe it's just trials and tests and hard times. I don't know, but how are you looking to get out of that? Because a lot of us will look at a, a hard time and say, I need to figure out a way to get out. But actually what we should be looking for is, what does God want me to get out of this? And so therefore, are you looking for deliverance in God alone? Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 16. I know this is a little lengthy. We're almost done. But Hebrews 12, 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Are you weary? Are you faint-hearted? Well, listen to what he has to say. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Do not be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. 
It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which we have all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we know we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, and it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness which would... with which no one will see the Lord, without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, so that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. This passage is talking about the discipline of God, and it says you are disciplined for a reason, that you may have the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God wants to train you and bring righteousness and goodness out of whatever trial, struggle, discipline, problem you're facing. God wants to bring good. And he says, hey, I want to, I want to train you. I, want, I know it seems painful now, but in the end, it'll yield peaceful fruits of righteousness. And then he says what not to do while we're going through a time of discipline or trial. Not to be bitter, not to be angry, but to have peace. To... Seek holiness, to seek God, to seek purity, to not be sexually immoral and give away what God has given us like Esau did when he gave away his birthright for a simple bowl of soup because his desires, his fleshly desires were more important to him than what God had for him. And I think a lot of times we sell ourselves short because we give in to our own fleshly desires instead of looking for what God has, which is so much better. We look for deliverance in so many other things. And I said this last week, I have a list. We could all have a list. What do we seek deliverance? When we are going through the hard times, when maybe we even know it's discipline, what do we go to? What do we run to to try to get out of the situation? Whatever it is, if it's not Jesus, if you're not giving yourself over to him and looking for what he is doing in it and through it, then you are missing the point. And as Israel, I feel, in the end, missed the point, we are so likely to do the same if we are not keeping our focus on God, the one who gives grace. Where I want to end, and I'll pray in just a moment, is simply this. You can take this harshly, or you can take this with great hope. Yes, God disciplines, and it's not doesn't feel good. But his discipline is all about his love. Going back to the hug that you received from your parent after the spanking. You see, God does discipline. And maybe he's disciplining you. But there's so much good on the other end if you will just simply reach out to him and let him hug you and say, I forgive you, I love you, I care for you. That'll move us to true repentance. So let's not just say, wow, God is so harsh. Remember, he was harsh to Israel for 8 years and then 18 years, but he was good to Israel for 40 years and 80 years. Yes, God disciplines. Yes, God is just, but he is loving. He is gracious. He is merciful. So if you are facing something right now, don't live in guilt or shame. If you're convicted, come to him in repentance and allow him to shower his grace, love, care upon you. You will never be the same. If you'll open yourself up to his grace, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for today. Thank you for the reminder from the book of Judges, Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, and God, how strong you really are. And God, if you can have victory over these earthly kingdoms, if you can have victory over these mighty men of valor with just a stick, with a, with a man who very likely was disabled. Lord, if you can have victory over those things, God, we know you can have victory over our sin. You already have had victory over our sin through your death on the cross, Jesus. 
He rose again to show that victory was indeed given. But yet, Lord, help us to trust that we truly already have the victory and God, that we can move on in our lives and not have to be brought down by sin. But God, as you discipline us, help us to look to you and help us to find grace and peace and the ultimate rest that you give through Jesus. Help us to see those things. And if there's anyone here that is struggling in any way, Lord, I pray that you would guide them to repentance, guide them to yourself. God, that you would show them the grace and mercy and love that you can pour down on them even in the midst of the discipline you have to give. And so we pray all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.